When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite philosophy, history, mythology, pop culture podcast. I think you may be uh, guessing, but I am very excited to be here to talk to you this evening. We have a great episode planned for you. Um, Real quick public service announcement. As some of you may or may not know, maybe you're new to the show, Laurel and I are going to get married next week. Yeah. Pretty exciting. So we're going to be taking um, at least two weeks off um, because we're getting married. Then we're going on our honeymoon. So we're going to be gone for the most of the month of October, maybe the rest of the month, which I know makes you sad. It makes me sad, too. It makes me sad, too. But it also makes me happy because I'm getting to marry my soulmate and best friend. Oh, that's me. But it got us thinking, and a ton of things it got us thinking about. So thing number one, we may not get the other opportunity to do a Halloween episode. So Halloween is a holiday that means so much to both myself and Laurel that we wanted to encapsulate Halloween and Halloweenness while we had the opportunity to record an episode. So consider this our Halloween episode. Um, maybe we'll have time to bang out something quick, but this is going to be the episode of Substance 1. 2. By the time you're listening to this, very likely Brett Kavanaugh will be the next Supreme Court justice. Yes. There could be some, you know, Senate trick, some bombshell news that derails that, but it's pretty much a foregone conclusion that Kavanaugh will be on the Supreme Court uh, by the time you hear this, which made us think about all of the issues the Kavanaugh hearing brought to the surface, all of the both problems and discussions that a man who may have raped someone or attempted to rape someone, pardon me, um, when he was in high school, and the lack of investigation, the lack of dialogue, the lack of just being honest that like, maybe this guy's a bad dude and we don't want him on the Supreme Court, you know, for life, brought to the surface 
So we wanted to figure a way to marry both what's happening in the world, our actual marriage, see what I did there, (laughs) and Halloween. And I think we came up with an interesting idea. We're going to talk about witches. I'm really excited for this podcast as well. Um, Because of the things you just laid out, our love of the holiday Halloween, our love of uh, the spooky and the creepy and horror, and uh, our love of mythology around around those topics and the history of this holiday. Um, But also because of how much this this identity, how much the witch has re-entered our uh, sort of popular consciousness in recent years and what we can learn about current events, what we can learn about where we are today from the stories that we have told for centuries about women and monstrous women. Um, I, for one, am very excited, especially um, from recent podcasts that we've shared with you about how much this podcast does address gender in storytelling, not only from pop culture perspective, but uh, throughout history and mythology. Uh, I think it's something that I am constantly trying to expand my knowledge of and expand my perspective on, and am really, really interested in uh, what we can learn about about gender, about women's issues, about all gender issues from the stories that we have told each other since we started telling stories. And so that's why I think we're going to tie in the holiday of Halloween, the idea of the witch, the history of the witch, and the mythology that is born from that identity, and bring that back together with what's going on in the world. So if you guys follow us out there on the social media land, wish us a happy marriage. Our official marriage day is going to be October 13th. Um, hashtag midnight myth wedding. If you're so inclined and want to send us a message and uh, we promise not the day of the wedding, but shortly thereafter we'll reply because day of the wedding will be too busy getting married. Yeah, Don't talk to me the day of the wedding. Yes. But uh, hashtag midnight myth wedding. And um, this episode is going to be a little different structurally. We typically engage with a piece of pop culture in which we examine and explore the broader deeper philosophical, mythological, and historical themes. And if you listen to our Halloween episode last year, we did something similar to that. We examined The Nightmare Before Christmas uh, and everything that's going on within that movie from a historical and mythological perspective. Definitely recommend going back if you're looking to get your fix for Halloween episodes. But yes, as you're saying, Derek, we are going to slightly change up the structure to something uh, that is a little bit more global in its perspective. Yeah, and so this is not going to be designed to be the comprehensive discussion of witches full stop. Rather, this is just the beginning of the conversation of witches. We will touch on some pop culture, but it's actually not the main theme. We really found in preparation of this podcast that there's actually too much in actual myth, history, and philosophy Um, to kind of jam pop culture in there. Because if we're going to talk about the pop culture, which, and be honest and genuine in that conversation, we must include the deep, deep, deep roots. And we must confront the deep, deep sexual gendered identity in it, frankly and honestly. And I think in protest of 
Justice Kavanaugh, I think there may be no better mythological discussion than the one we're about to embark on. Exactly. Yeah. Like you're saying, we could absolutely do a Hocus Pocus podcast and people would love it. You know, we would talk about the Sanderson sisters and it would be what it is, but we would pigeonhole the idea of what the witch is. We could do a Kiki's delivery service or a Sabrina, the teenage witch or a Willow or a Hermione Granger, or Glenda, episode, the good witch or Glenda or the witches of Macbeth. We could do an episode about those women, about those witches, but that would pigeonhole the idea of what the witch can be. And what we discovered in our research and what we've known for a really long time is that the witch, there are almost as many permutations and versions of what a witch can be as there are permutations and versions of what a woman can be. And so it's exciting to explode that perspective and look at the breadth and depth of uh, mythology that there is about this figure and get excited about what it offers us today. So I think without too much further ado, let's kind of jump in and try to understand this myth and how it came to be. Love it. I think before we do that, would you mind if people want to join the conversation after the episode, before the episode, or to wish us a happy marriage, hashtag Midnight Myth Wedding, what would they do? How could they reach us? Of course. What a wonderful segue. Please, if you want to get in touch with us, we are all over social media. We're on Twitter at The Midnight Myth, on Facebook, and on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. We have a website. It's www.midnightmyth.com, and you can see some of our older uh, archived episodes, and you can head over to the blog or drop us a line. If you are enjoying what you hear, make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcast app and leave us a rating or a review, especially on Apple Podcasts if you have the time, because it really helps us grow that conversation larger, and we're hoping to go totally global with this thing and take over the world. So... One of the cool things that I learned in preparation of this podcast, I think every American knows the story of Salem, Massachusetts, in which I think 20-some witches were killed in these famous witch trials. Mm -hmm. But actually, that kind of is a blip in the overall witch trials that happened in that era. So between the era of 1450 and 1750, was the period of time in which witch persecution was a major crime in which the state would find and kill witches. Most of the people that were murdered actually happened in England and Scotland. In Scotland, yeah. In these witch persecutions where someone was accused of witchcraft, there was a trial. Usually the witch was tortured until the witch confessed and then was executed. Uh, predominantly 90% of the executions, both in America and in Europe, were women. About 10% were men. And it got me thinking of, what is the origin of the woman sorceress? So I really kind of worked my way backwards. So one of the other intro questions I had is the word witch, which is synonymous with the idea and the symbol of what it means to be a woman who is a magic user, who maybe is over a cauldron stewing little children and she's got green skin. Where did this word come from? Obviously to me, this is my starting assumption that this word has ancient roots. Right. That when I say ancient, I mean ancient Greek, ancient Sumerian, that the, the start of civilization is where the word witch came from. Actually it didn't. Right. It's an old English word, and it came out of the um, 
very late Roman, very early medieval Old English. Um, there is definitely debate about this, so that is not a dogmatic universal truth. There are some that argue otherwise, but one just needs to go to etymology dictionary, online etymologydictionary.com, put in witches. You could get a good cursory knowledge of the debate, but for the most part, the word as we know it is not ancient. It's more medieval or like late ancient. Sure. So I thought that there was obviously, a, at the very least, a linguistical disconnect between the witch that was burned in like the Monty Python, burn the witches, and the witches of the ancient world. So I started re researching in particular ancient Greek women who are considered at least now to be witches. Or of the witch tradition. Exactly. The origin of maybe the idea of the witch before there was the word witch. Right. So there are a handful of women that, and they're all women in ancient Greek myth, that meet this archetype of the witch. Um, but one thing that I found to be interesting is, A, none of them are mortal. They are all of at least lineage where they are either fully goddesses or related to gods and goddesses. So there is a separation between these powers that these women had in ancient myth and the regular person by virtue of their divinity, right? So I thought that was an interesting characteristic in the respect that it's not a human who sold her soul to an evil spirit to get power. It was someone that was born with the power. So then it got me to the story of the grave. So I may be mispronouncing that. It's an ancient Greek word after all. But these are the three women who share an eye and a tooth. And they pass around the tooth and they pass around the eye. And from them, <clears throat> they can foretell and they can see things that others can't. They happen to also be, depending upon what version of the myth you're accounting, the sisters of the Gorgons, the Gorgons, which we all know Medusa as the Gorgon right. which Perseus must kill. So Perseus comes to the Greae who are sharing their tooth and eye because they can lead him towards the Medusa, which he must then kill. And there are three of them. And the idea of the three witches is a very powerful idea that from that humble beginning has resonated throughout all mythology up until Shakespeare, and then continues today. You mentioned Hocus Pocus. Yeah. So it. let me ask the question, why three? And there's no real answer to this, why three? But, there, but this happens in Norse mythology, Babylonian mythology. It happens in Roman mythology. Right. The idea you, of three women sorceresses. You say, why three? And I think, oh, because three is a powerful number. Because three is how many witches there are, always are. Because there's three witches in Macbeth. I'm not giving you a real answer. It's just kind of baked in that three is the powerful triad. Uh, but there's, sure. there's no true, like... Well, and Macbeth was basing his three witches. I'm sorry, Shakespeare, Shakespeare yeah. was basing his three witches in Macbeth off of this mythic tradition. Mm -hmm. So like, he didn't invent it. He he grasped onto it. There was something about it that he found appealing. So the now I'm not going to claim that I know this undoubtedly to be true as I know that I'm sitting in this chair, meaning that this is not a theory that, or it's not even a theory, it's a hypothesis, but psychoanalysis may give us a reason for three. 
and why in particular women with power in groups of three. And it has to do with if you accept the idea that when you were an infant, things are imprinted on your consciousness that will affect you for the rest of your life. So you have to accept being an infant will form you. Well, as being an infant, one of the first things that you will come to recognize is the face of the mother. Right. A female. And the first thing in that face that you will recognize are two eyes and a mouth. The three. It creates a psychological imprint. Two eyes and a mouth. The three things that represent the one mother. And the mother to the infant, according to psychoanalysis, is the most powerful that is your goddess. So that as you grow and then as you mature, you externalize the three in your myths, in your stories, as a representation of projecting that infantile imp- impression. I think that's really interesting. And I, I'm sure that this was uh, you know, something that's constructed out of a lot of uh, research and and thought, but as you were saying that, I also wondered too if it could be not just two eyes and a mouth, but one face and two breasts, or some other, you know, infantile projection of that triad that is connected to the female power. You also get the three in the triple goddess, right? The maiden, mother, and crone, which is um, something that has been adopted by neo-paganism and has been set kind of upon, it's a, it's a set of constraints that's been set upon ancient mythology uh, by contemporary literary theorists like Robert Graves, who say that there are these three aspects of woman. Uh, this idea of the maiden, mother, and crone can be um, very empowering or it can be very reductive when it talks about it the types of women that there can be, but it also says that there is power in being the maiden. There is power in being the mother. There's power in being the wizened crone. Interesting. Um, Before we dive into that, because I want to ask a follow-up question. One thing I want to go back to the Perseus story, if you'll permit me. Of course. Yeah. So in the Perseus story, what is the, the, the purpose of the hero Perseus? Perseus is the hero of ancient Greekness. That might sound vague, so let me be a little more specific. If we were telling a Perseus-style story as Americans, it would be George Washington chopping down the cherry tree. Right. It's foundational. The story of Perseus sets up what it means to be an ancient Greek hero. It is the Captain America of ancient Greece, right? It is It is this story. It is the Superman. It is the story that all the kids know, all the kids identify with. It sets up this idea of a Greek good man and does it in the most idealized version. So because Perseus is pure, he doesn't have any faults. He succeeds at everything. He is brave. But it is also the representation of ancient Greek out of tribal matriarchy and into societal patriarchy. Mm, mm. So it takes Greek out of a society where women had more power and a society where the goddess is the most important aspect and form, and it transitions it to the male in which the man is the most important form. And what does Perseus have to do? He has to conquer the three women through cleverness, by stealing their eye, by stealing their sight, by taking their power, 
they betray their sister, the Gorgon, who they go, Perseus then must behead. Medusa is one of three Gorgons, another representation of the three. And the word Medusa, as I recently learned, actually translates into the word guardian. Yeah. So he has to actually strike down the feminine form, the Medusa. The protector. And rising out of the blood of the Gorgon and the uh, overcoming of the three is, three women is the destruction of the goddess and the, the entry point of a human man and the formation of a Greek patriarchy. So my point is it's a foundational story that we live under the shadow of today that transitions us out of a society more matriarchal as many ancient tribal societies were. And I'm not saying the Greeks were this for a fact because I don't really know that, but into a patriarchal society in which it is men that are the, the structure and the organizational unit. Women, wilderness, men, order. Women, magical, men, reality. And yes, before anyone out there... Women, intuition, men, uh, reason. Reason. For anyone that tweets at me, yes. But didn't Athena help Perseus? Absolutely. You know, so I'm not saying this is a, like, perfect beat for beat. No room for debate. Tons of room for debate, and let's have that debate. But Perseus as representing Greek human maleness is countered against women divine beings that he must overcome and destroy, which helps set the groundwork of all Western civilization as a patriarchy. That's amazing. I I also just want to comment. I love that you call Perseus the Captain America or the Superman figure, because as like an American introduced to Greek mythology, you, you imagine that the most popular myth was Hercules or that the most popular, um, hero was Hercules or Heracles, right? Because he's the um, enduring myth that got a Disney movie. But Heracles is definitely the Batman, right? He is the troubled, introverted, uh, you know, inward looking uh, hero who is powerful, yes, but who makes incredible mistakes and is deeply flawed, where Perseus is the kind of golden child of Greek mythology. So I just loved that um, comparison right there. It really was amazing. Yes. And um, well, the reason there's Heracles and Hercules, Heracles is ancient Greek, Roman, it's Hercules. Right, right. The Romans worshiped Hercules yeah. as a god yeah. more so than the Greeks did. The Greeks still did, but Hercules was more important to the Romans. Yeah. Right. But as Perseus was more important to the Greeks as a foundational myth. I love that. That's a great segue because my uh, research on the origin of the witch myth actually did take me to ancient Rome to begin with. Um, It brought me to around the first century BCE. So uh, this is slightly more contemporary than some of the stuff that we're talking about, but still uh, comparably ancient. There are um, existing folk tales of a creature called the Strix, Uh, which carries a lot of the archetypes and tropes that we associate with the witch today. Um, This figure, the Strix, began in folklore as a night demon in the form of an owl or a creature that would terrorize uh, babies and men and children uh, at night. Now, over time, this creature that was just an owl or was just a demon that would take the form of an owl became in myth, in folklore, 
a shape-shifting woman who would sometimes take the form of an owl. But she was always associated with kidnapping babies or kidnapping children or harming men. Often this um, the story of kidnapping of children would include nursing or suckling the baby and feeding it poisoned milk. So taking this maternal uh, tradition, this maternal ritual of breastfeeding and turning it into something monstrous and poisonous is the point of that story, right? So she's kind of the uh, the Roman antecedent of some of the things that we associate with the witch today. There's also, I found out something really interesting. There's a, a funerary inscription that exists in Rome noting that a four-year-old slave belonging to the sister of the emperor Claudius was one of the babies carried off by a witch. Now, this uh, idea of the Strix, Hmm. yeah, isn't that interesting? Or Claudius just got rid of the baby. Right. Now, these sort of archetypical ideas of carrying off children or victimizing the vulnerable. they are things that we can track all the way through Hansel and Gretel. they are things we can track through Puritan mythology, right? But we can see the evolution happening uh, through ancient mythology, even still before we have this term witch, and we carry ourselves over to ancient Judaic tradition into a character called Lilith. Uh, now, Lilith, you may be familiar with. She's a character who originates in the Talmud, and she is the first wife of Adam, the first man of biblical tradition. Uh, so before Eve, she is not created out of Adam's rib. She is made out of the same clay that Adam is made out of. So she is his equal, uh, and she is the first woman who inhabits the earth. Now, Lilith was not down with being subservient to Adam, So instead of hanging out and being basically his wife slave, she was like, I'm going to leave the Garden of Eden and do my own thing. And that creates in her, in Lilith, this identity that is demonic, this identity that is uh, on one hand liberated and on the other hand evil, separating oneself from the patriarchal. So she's linked to demons. She has this entire tradition of mythology where she steals babies, where she eats babies, where she victimizes children. And in symbolism, in etymology even, the name Lilith gets associated with screech owls. So we we can see that sort of multicultural association with this nocturnal animal, with this creature of the night with this vampiric woman who refuses to be part of a patriarchal society or part of a subservient um, system associated with demon, associated with the idea of this witch. Now, Lilith has been contemporarily appropriated as this symbol of the liberated woman. She has been appropriated by second wave feminism. You can look at Lilith Fair, which is an all-woman music festival, and she is now like praised as a sort of fabulous, I'm going to do what I want to do woman. Interesting. It wasn't, it, and this might be like totally derailing the conversation, but it just popped into my head. Mm-hmm. Wasn't there a like goddess character in True Blood named Lilith? Yeah. There was, wasn't totally. there? She was like the original vampire. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And she's absolutely referencing that Lilith. 
Well, you know, it's, you know, sorry to, to bring up True Blood. No, it's fine. <laughs> you know, but you should always be sorry to bring up True Blood, but it happens to all of us. It's true, but I'm not that sorry. But anyway, <laughs> um, I digress. What's interesting is that you talk about the connection between the ancient Hebrew Lilith and the Roman Scalin? Scal- Strix. Strix. So the that there is a, a connection and that these two are overlapping stories. You know, it just reminds me that we are taught ancient history as like nice, neat little chunks of knowledge. Like yeah, this like, is the period by which there were Romans. This is the Sumerians. This is the Americans. Right. This is when it started. This is when it stopped. But in reality, it's not really like that. Humans are more messy. They're more interconnected. They're more communicative. You know, the idea that the ancient Hebrew and the ancient Roman can share a story talks about how integrated that these these societies were through the power of empires yeah. that linked these massive trade networks, cultural networks. Uh, and I'm certainly not arguing that we should all have empires, quite the contrary. <laughs> I'm saying that it is an artifact and byproduct of an interconnected world that so many of these different stories overlapped and got to mean different things at different times but still kept a little bit of their origin. It's the same kind of thing that we talked about when we uh, explored why so many cultures have dragon myths. Uh, It's the same reason why so many people have witch myths. Part of it is probably foundational. Part of it may be psychological, psychoanalytical, but a lot of it is based in the fact that we underestimate how much communication the ancient world had and how much people were sharing their stories. This is the entire reason that we have a Midnight Myth podcast is because we're trying to understand why there is something so universal in the stories that we tell and whether that is that it's deeply ingrained in our our genes, in our, in our, our souls, or whether it's just that we looked across cultures, we looked across languages and told each other our stories. I think either one of those is just as magical, just as miraculous. And my answer to why women sorceress, why women compacted with evil spirits with magical powers, I think deals with a reaction and repudiation of the goddess as the center of the universe to switch it to the gods you know, to switch it from the female to the male. I think it also deals very much with the act of childbirth as an act of magic unknown to the ancient peoples that it, that required other women to work together to make sure that they're children. So women got these roles of both nurturer, right? So the mother, the crone, which I would characterize as potentially being the midwife, the old woman who's been there and the maiden who's there waiting next to to do this cycle all over again. Right. Right. But in that, as societies, in particular in the West, because um, I'm just more familiar, I'm not saying the East didn't, didn't, did or didn't do this, I just don't know as much, as they became more patriarchal, the idea of a woman as magical by virtue of the maiden myth, or I'm sorry, the, the maiden mother and crone, as this cycle of which they could recycle the power of life started to become a threat because it was the king. It was the father who was supposed to bring life. Right. There's fear at the heart of the witch myth, right? 
the the fearful uh, the fearful blank space where there could be an answer to the question, and the question is, what would happen if women had unlimited power, or what would happen if women's unlimited power that they are already endowed with was fully realized? What would this world come to? And there are so many answers to that. They could become totally evil and wreak havoc and steal babies and eat them. Or they could be magical healers and heal the world or any number of things. And we see so many iterations in our myths and in our folklore and in our fairy tales of what the answer to that question could be. They could become Baba Yaga or they could become Glinda the Good Witch. We don't know. But that question strikes fear into all of our hearts because I think somewhere we all realize how powerful women truly are and how how little of that power is fully realized in the world that we have created and the structures that we have put into place. I'm really interested in the sort of contemporary renaissance of the witch that I touched on at the top of this episode because at least just in observing my generation, there is not just an obsession with hocus pocus, but a a realignment with the identity of witch. Whether or not uh, we identify as pagans or Wiccans, there is a uh, a renewed interest in calling ourselves witches or calling ourselves witchy. Uh, There was a really interesting Vice article that came out a while back that explored actually the growing ties um, of the witch identity to LGBTQ plus communities which I think is really interesting because it shows how much this identity can speak not only to women or female-bodied or uh, woman-identified communities, but marginalized communities in general, um, whatever those Venn diagrams may be. There's a great quote um, from that article, from an interview there. Quote, Witchcraft entered the feminist consciousness spiritually through traditions like Wicca and politically as groups like Witch, the women's international terrorist conspiracy from hell, publicly hexed everything from beauty pageants to fees for public transit, wrote Moira Donovan in Vice. But the idea of the witch has come a long way since then. Witchcraft is seeing a resurgence among queer-identified young people seeking a powerful identity that celebrates the freedom to choose who you are. So this renaissance of witchcraft, this renaissance of the witch is very much a renaissance of feminism uh, or whatever you identify yourself as finding the liberation of Lilith to say your garden of Eden is not good enough for me I can go make my own paradise that I think is really really interesting when we explore how to uh, how to name ourselves how to become ourselves in another shifting, trying time to be a woman or a marginalized person in a marginalized community. I enjoy, on that same note, the idea that the men who persecuted 90% women between 1450 and 1750 across Europe and North America in making the witch persecution their pursuit, their... Uh, bloody, 
bloody mission in the world, I enjoy the idea that there is a, from that cultural crater, from that 300-year period of oppression, the pendulum has swung in a direction in which we are now free enough to reclaim the word as witch, as not about women being devil-worshipping, power-hungry witches. Right. But rather about being, you know, a positive... um, you empowering, know, yeah. empowering self, self, you know, self empowering. Yeah. I'm just saying the same words over again. <laughs> it's all good. But I enjoy the idea that knowing that there are plenty of those and predominantly men in that period that are hopefully turning over in their fucking graves being like, witches are actually cool and neat and they are gaining recognition. And guess what? They're not devil worshippers. Right. And historic witch hunts. So in Scotland, in England, in the American colonies, across Europe especially, have been widely criticized since the time and were criticized in their time for being prejudiced, right? For being misogynistic. That they targeted women simply for being either on the margins of her society because she was poor and a drain on her village or she was impious or she was sexually promiscuous in a Puritan, uh, you know, stronghold. Or, or viewed as sexually promiscuous. Or as sexually Maybe promiscuous, wasn't. Right. Yeah. Or she was ugly, or she they didn't like the way that she talked, or whatever it was, people could say, she's a witch, and there was no due process. There was no due process. And she would be tortured, and she would be brutally murdered in front of the people of her town. Hundreds of people were brutally murdered with absolutely no proof and patently ridiculous accusations of black magic and sexual congress with the devil. So it's this this idea that if a woman challenges in the smallest way your Puritan notions of sex, of gender, of religion, she deserves to be burned at the stake or she deserves to hang hang and strangle to death. Like, so absurd. Anyway, go on. So how did this happen? And I'm glad that we're at this topic right now, and I can't wait to talk about it more with you. Mm -hmm. So how did it happen that there was a 300-year period in a time not so far away from our own? Really not. It was considered the the early modern period. Yes. Up until 1750s is up until the Enlightenment. Yeah. The Enlightenment. Think of the word and think of our enlightened people burning witches. Yes, they were. So how does this happen? Well, I would like to go back to the Perseus myth and the foundation of ancient Greekness and ancient Greek patriarchalness as a conquering over female deities. Yeah. Right. And that reverberation there that started at that time. Well, ancient Greece was one of the cultural foundations of ancient Rome. Rome was its own culture. It was independent, but it adopted a lot of Greek things. Rome was also patriarchal. They adopted a lot of religious terms, a lot of lit- religious cult practices. The religion of the ancient Romans and the religion of the ancient Greeks kind of started to blend into one until Constantine came around and converted them to Christianity. And here is the, the crux and the point. If you're an ancient Christian cleric who has now gained favor of the Roman uh, emperor and your job is to spread Christianity, you are not going to be very successful if you tell the people who have been sacrificing to Jupiter and to Heracles uh, that have they been doing that for a thousand years, that they were sacrificing to things that didn't exist. Right. 
Instead, they said, you are sacrificing, and those sacrifices work. However, those are demons, not gods, right? Because there is only one God. Zeus is real, but he's a demon. Well, then what else becomes a demon? So does Athena. So does Rhea. So does Gaia. So do all of the female characters. Right. They all become part of this demon soup, right? That all of these ancient world demons are alive and well, and at least half of them, by counting, are women. And there's an incredible case to be made, too, that in iconography, uh, images of Jesus and images of the Abrahamic God have been compared or uh, created in the image of Zeus, right, to, to ease that transition, or the other uh, patriarchal gods of the pantheon. But the women, we get the one image of the Virgin Mary, but we get very few images of women in, uh, in Christianity that are in any way deified. So they can sort of fade out and become the Liliths and become the, the female demons and temptresses, right? Well, flash forward to the mid-15th century, and suddenly there's the idea that women can have a compact with the devil. So there is a ancient Greek um, a god named Dionysus. One of his major cults were women who would go into the woods at night. They would dance. They would drink. They would sing. They would get naked. They were called the Maenads. Those are the Maenads. If you're keeping track, uh, I'm going to throw in a second True Blood reference to season two in Marianne. But... Uh, Yeah, much older than True Blood. Point of fact, though, one of the last deities to hold sway in the ancient Roman world was Dionysus. Right. So Dionysus and Satan became symbolically one. So if you've ever asked, why does Satan have hooves for feet? Because Dionysus, one of his symbols was the satyr, were the pons. Right. Right. We've talked about this in other episodes. These creatures that had hooves for feet. Yeah. So they were trying to take these these Dionysian cults, the cult of Pan, the cult of Dionysus, and they were trying to Satanize them to shake people out of worshiping them because those were the ones that just couldn't really just burn out. So don't tell people Dionysus isn't real. Tell them Dionysus is the devil. But central to Dionysian worship was women acting free yeah. and women dancing, a thing that if you've Indulging. ever... And like, if you've ever seen The Crucible, if you've ever seen the movie The Witch that came out a few years ago, mm-hmm. women dancing in Puritan society is a sign of Satan and a sign of Satanism. Well, that comes out of this tradition so that all you needed to do was be a enterprising young man of, you know, not a lot of power, not a lot of wealth, but you know a bunch of, of women who you can accuse of doing a thing like fucking dancing Next thing you know, you can persecute them, you can seize their land, you know, and people are going to cheer for you. And then you get 300 years of terror, you know, spanning two different continents around persecuting the witch. So how does it happen? It happens. And here's why the midnight myth matters. It happens by stories. The stories we tell each other matter. If we are going to look each other in an eye and tell a narrative, and whether we say that's just a story or whether we say that's the truth or whether we say that's the story from our perspective, it matters. 
And here's how we get to our starting point. If you're going to look me in the eye and you're going to tell me that you should be on this Supreme Court, you should be able to judge whether one law is virtuous or wicked, whether one person should live or die. If we're going to give you that power and you're going to tell me the story why, and you're going to fucking lie to me, you don't deserve that power. You are the representation of Perseus gone awry. You're the reason we never needed a Perseus to begin with, because it was never true. You never needed to be a powerful and happy and content man to conquer the feminine. You never needed to spill Gorgon blood to identify yourself as a man. There was always room at the table for the woman. There is a huge faction in our country that believes that the testimony brought against Brett Kavanaugh by Dr. Christine Blasey Ford was fabricated and engineered simply to destroy him. In the last couple of weeks after we've watched what has played out on the national stage, I've heard a few times from uh, men in my life or men who I'm connected to on social media um, who are in my circle say, um, I can't believe after, after everything now, after everything that's coming out with me too, after everything that's come out with Dr. Ford, that women aren't just screaming all the time, that women aren't just burning everything to the ground. Um, and the truth is we are angry all the time. You know, if we're paying attention, we are angry all the time. We just know that we can't show how angry we are because the world that has been set up for us is not ready to take our anger, is not accepting of our anger and will discount our anger. And so we cannot burn things to the ground. The president who is sitting in the highest position in the world right now has reappropriated the term witch hunt to mean people coming after him to properly and duly investigate claims that he may have made some misconduct. The same for Brett Kavanaugh, that an investigation into claims of misconduct or illegality constitutes a witch hunt. The term witch hunt refers to a dark 300 years in the history of the world, in the history of two continents, like you said, that saw hundreds of people, not just women, but disproportionately so, brutally tortured and murdered on patently false charges, motivated by hysteria, by superstition, by fear of the power that women possess and what they could do if that power should be realized. As we sit here and we reflect on thousands of years of discourse of witches and what it means to be a woman with magical powers in the world, I know we talk about uh, gender issues and feminist issues a lot because those are both very important to us. I don't think uh, we are limited in our discussion that it, it blinds us, but I think it's an important thing. When we are at this crossroads that we are at, I think we can safely say no more witch hunts. And we need to strive for the truth. 
And we need to be mindful of the stories we tell each other and the stories that we're listening to and hearing. And we need to ask ourselves at all times why this story, what this story means, who benefits, how do we get here? Is the story isolated? Is it interconnected? And reinvigorate critical thinking, discussion, and analysis. Because any way we slice it, if you're being really honest about what it means to have power, we don't want tyrants. We don't want bullies. We don't want people that treat other humans as their playthings to decide our lives. And it seems that we've gotten into a point where there's a counter narrative that says, if you want equality for women, well, we're going to give you Brett Kavanaugh just to rub it in your face. And I say this right now, um, hopeful that maybe when I listen to this episode that Brett Kavanaugh is not Justice Kavanaugh. I am pretty certain at this point it is a foregone conclusion he will be. But let us pause and reflect on the long legacy of witches and realize that it was always a witch hunt, but it was never against Kavanaugh's and Trump's. It was always against innocent fucking women. The last thing I'm going to say tonight is make sure you are registered to vote. The midterms are weeks away. Go to rockthevote.org if you need to check your status or register to vote and make sure that you know your state's guidelines, have the proper IDs ready, and get to your polling place on time on midterms day. And next time we talk, Laurel and I are going to be married. (laughs) We're going to be married. And until next time, guys, please love, hug, cry, share, but don't lose hope. Because all we have is each other. I love every one of you listening so very much. And you know what? Be kind. And live deliciously. Mm -hmm.